The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, this morning we will fix our eyes primarily on verses 20 and 21 of 1 Peter chapter 1. But as is the case uh, with all Scripture passages. We talked about that this morning at our, or this Friday at our Friday leadership group as we're walking through how to study the Bible. What comes before the verses that we're looking at is vital for our understanding of our present text. And so let's look at a couple of connections. And you may not remember this, but we've been walking through First Peter in between uh, sections of Exodus and the, the Ten Commandments right now as Phil is preaching through those. I want to make a few connections for you between verses 17 and 19, and then our section, verses 20 and 21 this morning. So first, verses 20 and 21 are really an extension of Peter's thinking, his uh, his logic in verses 17 to 19. And really, verses 17 to 21, uh, if you have the NASB, it'll show that it's one big long sentence. And it is. It's one sentence, one flow of thought in Peter's mind in the Greek text. Verse 17 is communicating the point that we should live our lives, that we should conduct ourselves in, look at verse 17, what he says, in fear. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves or live your lives with fear during the time of your stay on earth. And then he says, if indeed we as obedient children, verse 14, uh, rather bumping up to verse 14, live in fear, if indeed you call on him as father. So if, if God is your father, Peter is saying you ought to live in fear. And, and that's a, a very distinctly Christian idea to live in fear, to, to fear God. The part of what it means to be a Christian is to live in fear and awe and reverence of our God. And he says we're to do that if we call on him as father call on our Father for what? And that's the question that I ask when I read that. What 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 are we calling on Him for? We call Him Father, and what do we call on Him as Father for? Well, I think what Peter has been doing so far, and what he he does through the rest of chapter 1, is makes the point that we call on Him as Father for this, for these things, for help, for support, as we suffer, as we endure pain, for hope in hopeless situations, what seem like hopeless scenarios, and for holiness, for help, for support, for hope, and for holiness. That's what we call on Him as Father for We need all of those things during our sojourn on our way home to the one who judges and the one who redeems. We need him. We call on him every day for these kinds of things. And then verse 18 and 19 give a strange reason as to why we should fear, why we should revere and call on the name of the Lord, namely this. Look at verse 18. He says this, knowing, knowing 
in, in view of the knowledge that you have, that you were what? Ransomed. That you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Calling him his father. You're, you're living fear because you know that you have been ransomed from an old, futile life. And if that's true, Peter says, live in fear. From your old, few, uh, you've been ransomed from an old, futile way of life, and now live in reverence and fear because you have been ransomed by means of the infinitely precious blood of Christ. And what does this word precious mean? But that it is rare, it is invaluable, it is honorable, it is precious. Precious blood. Which was the ransom price for yours and mine deliverance from sin and captivity. And God's certain judgment. That was the ransom price. Picture it. Blood. Have you ever seen blood? A lot of blood? It is gruesome. You want to look away. It is terrifying to see blood. Like what Jesus poured out. But His blood is not like yours and my blood. His blood was precious. The precious blood as of a lamb. Spotless. Perfect. The God-man poured out His blood to ransom you from futile living. And that is not a guilt trip. That is freedom. That is your hope. That is the answer to your frustrated living as you battle temptation and sin and discouragement and worldliness. Blood was poured out on your behalf to ransom you out of a futile, worthless life. Amazing. If you're a parent, Maybe you've experienced the the heartache that this text is depicting. Futility. We, as children of darkness, lived in futility. Worthlessness. Empty lives. Children of the devil. And yet God, in His mercy, makes us children to Himself. He calls Himself our Father. And if we call on Him as Father, we're to live in fear. And that makes sense if you think about it. You're to live in reverence and in awe. Think of the heartache of a parent who is given and given and given everything to their child to make them, to to help them make it through life. A child or a, a, a A young person in your community. Some of you have have adopted into your own family children who are not your own, whether from the community or from another nation, and you have made them, if not legally your own child, as though they were your child. And that is precious. That is beautiful. That is glorious. 
And so you invest your life and your resources and your energy and your whole being into training and teaching and loving and getting ready to prepare that child for a life, not of futility, but of value and of contribution to the world and by God's grace to the church and the Great Commission. But some of you parents have experienced the deep heartache of watching your children Take all that you have given them and throwing it in your face. Throwing it all away for the sake of their sin. They've thrown it in your face over and over again. And kids, don't be like that. Do not despise your parents. Do not despise how they've invested in you and loved you and provided for you everything that you have needed from the moment of your birth. And even before that, and oh, the heartache, oh, the deep pain that parents have felt. I I saw it in my own parents' eyes as, as my brothers and I wrestled and as we sinned and as some of them and some of us threw it in our parents' face over and over again as though the gift were worthless. And the more precious the gift, the more valuable the gift, the greater the sacrifice, the more horrible is the heartbreak when the gift is taken and it is used to fuel and fund rebellion. And there comes a point where a father says, enough is enough, son. You can't keep coming home like this. You can't keep coming home drunk and high or whatever it is. You must go. And so it is with this valuable gift of Christ's blood, the grace of God. How valuable was the blood of Christ that ransomed you from futility? And what Peter is saying, if that's true of you, brothers and sisters, if that's true of us, don't Go on in futility. Don't go back. Don't throw the gift of the ransom price back in the face of your Savior. Don't do that. Don't go on in sin. Don't go on in futility. But fear and revere and treasure the ransom price. Treasure the one who paid the price for you. The precious blood of Christ was like that of a lamb, a spotless lamb. And so Peter says silver and gold are, are worthless to pay this kind of ransom. They, those things seem like rubbish uh, now that we think about it in view of the, the precious blood of Christ that was poured out for us. That's like rubbish. There's something far more costly to free us that was given. You have been ransomed by the imperishable blood of Christ, which, what does it mean that it's imperishable? That it it affects the, the ransom price that was paid has ongoing effects in this life and into eternity. It affords eternal life and, brothers and sisters, obedience today today and so how fearful it is for that child who treats their father's gifts with disdain how treacherous it is to fund sin 
Peter is saying, with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, believer, don't go on saying, I've got grace, I've got precious blood that was poured out for me, I'm good, I can just kind of live how I want. I don't need to really make a break from sin. What Peter is saying is, don't do that. Don't throw the gift back in the Savior's face, but cling to it. Treasure it. Say, God, I don't treasure it like I ought to. Would you help me to treasure it? And to see the the, the pleasures for sin as what they are, but passing and worthless and empty and vain promises. And help me. Give me the desire to obey, as Peter has said in verses 14 to 16. Help me to be a child of obedience. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, as as he said in verses 14 to 16, be holy. And if you don't want to be holy, plead with God to make you holy. If you see that you lack a desire, but you're still saying that the precious blood of Christ that was poured out is precious to you, but you don't feel like obeying, then plead with the Lord. Lord, help me to love being your child. Help me to love your commands. Oh, how I love your commands. Help me to want to do whatever you say in your word as a follower of Christ. Oh, dear saint, in view of this precious blood, would you plead even a prayer like that right now? I had to plead this weekend when I had sinned against my whole family. I had to plead as I was standing in the bathroom putting toothpaste on one of my kids' toothbrushes to say, God, would you help me to feel the weight of my sin just now? Because I want to justify myself. I want to, I want to make it all seem like it was everyone else's fault. And so I pleaded with the Lord. And you know what he did? He answered my prayer. He answered my prayer. He will answer that prayer, dear brothers and sisters. And so Peter warns us against this very thinking. He says, conduct yourselves with fear, trembling that you would treat with disdain the precious gift that was paid to free you. Fight the futility of trying to use that ransom as a means for sin. By fixing your heart on the greatness of God's mercy found in texts like this. The death and the blood and the triumphant resurrection of Christ from the dead to set you free from futile ways. And as you do, as you seek to live holy and to fight your sin, your fight and hope will intensify Or, it will be hindered in direct connection to your view and your value of the ransom price. Does that make sense? Your hope and your desire to fight sin will intensify or it will be hindered in direct connection to your view of the preciousness of this ransom price. And I think that's the logic of these verses. And so let me just read them to you. Let me read these verses to you. And maybe just by reading them together, you'll see and hear that flow. And the apostle of hope, that's Peter. He talks about hope in his epistles more than any other apostle. Uh, will be helped 
by the Holy Spirit to see these truths and that our hope will be elevated and we will be helped to hate our sin even more. Let me read these verses for us. Verses 17 to 21. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. So that, so that your faith and hope are in God. I'm not going to tell you how many, but we're going to see a bunch of truths. I'm not going to tell you how many because you won't believe me that we'll get through it all. Okay. Truths to elevate our hope and help our hatred of sin. To elevate our hope and to help our hatred of sin. Number one, the first truth is this in this text. To help your hope, to elevate your hope, and to help you in your fight against sin first truth is this, that Christ was chosen from before time. Christ was chosen from before time. Look at the text in verses, in verse 20. He, this lamb, this Christ, he was foreknown, prognosco. He was foreknown or chosen before the foundation of the world. Christ was chosen from before time. And now how does that give you hope? How does that help you fight your sin? Well, that's what I want to explain. Here's the thing. Redemption, your purchase out of sin and out of the slave market of sin and out of the grip of Satan and out of the shackles of your slavery was not an afterthought. Christ was known and He was chosen from eternity past. The plan was known from eternity past and your redemption was known and planned from all eternity. Christ was foreknown from before the foundation of the world. What was before the foundations of the world? An endless, innumerable amount of years, millions and billions, those those things, days hadn't even been created yet. And God existed, and Christ was known. But who is this Christ? But the Messiah the anointed one, the king, the savior, the ransom price. Christ was foreknown. You were foreknown. There is complete knowledge in God and in Christ. 
And if Christ is who this text says He is, the ransom, the one who can save you from your sins, He has always been known as a Savior. But you can't be a Savior if there aren't people to save. And so you, believer in Christ, have always been known. Amazing. The plan was known from eternity past. And that Greek word prognosko, or to foreknow, or to to be chosen, to be foreknown, speaks uh, not of just a simple foreknowledge, but of the knowledge that characterizes, not just that God knows things, but specifically in this text, and in Romans chapter 8, that uh, it's a knowledge that characterizes an intimate, personal relationship. And there's two other places in the New Testament that this word prognosco speaks of this kind of foreknowledge. It's Romans 8, 29, and Romans 11, verse 2. And so if foreknowledge means nothing more than God simply looking ahead to see what was going to happen, right? God just kind of looked down the path of time and goes, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Well, this verse is meaningless, But to be consistent with the, uh, and to be consistent with kind of a simple foreknowledge definition, you would have to say that this means that God looked down the corridors of time, discovered that Christ would willingly lay down his life for sinners, kind of just figuring that out somehow. And then on that basis, decide to, to appoint him the mediator between God and man. That, oh, okay, th- this is what's going to happen, and uh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, you, Jesus, you'll go. Okay, you go. You be the Savior, the Father, and the Spirit. We'll just kind of hold back. We'll wait. No, Jesus, you'll go. Okay, good. All right, we got a plan. Ready, break. Let's go. But that's not what this word means. Instead, Peter's intent is to point to the intimate knowledge of relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in an eternal, Trinitarian relationship. Think of it. Look at what he says. Verse 20. Verse 20. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, Christ, the, the one who has precious blood, the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest... In the last times, for the sake of you. Who was he foreknown by? You? No, you weren't there. doesn't matter what your kids say. Well, you know, I was with God before I was born. No, you weren't with God. You weren't in existence yet. But who was? Well, the Father and the Spirit. And they existed and had a plan from eternity past in a loving, glorious magnificent relationship and they together not only had and contained in their infinite mind but also would hatch in the proper time the plan and the purposes of redemption through Christ. In Romans 11 to uh, Paul uses this term with respect to Israel. He says that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. They are not ultimately and finally rejected, but Israel in some way will be restored one day. 
And that's where Paul warns Gentiles, don't be arrogant, don't boast against them. You didn't do anything to add yourself into the family of God. God still has plans for them as part of the people of God. But he's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so we can't conclude that Israel was, was the only people of God that God was aware of. God was aware of Israel and he was going to save them. But rather Paul's point is to emphasize the intimate relationship between God and Israel founded on this, these covenant promises. God had a relationship with the people of Israel through His eternal promises. And He foreknew them in a loving relationship kind of way. And there's some in the evangelical world who want to say that God doesn't know the future like this. He doesn't know those whom are His. He doesn't know whom He has given to the Son from eternity past. But brothers and sisters, He knows everything. Everything. He rules over everything. He knows everything. And for what? For what purpose? In what way was Christ known and are you known or chosen? Christ was chosen for, uh, from before time to redeem. This is what He was chosen for. He was foreknown to redeem sinners like you and me from the futile ways of our forefathers. Lives infested with sin and the love of self that that fills the earth like a plague. That's what Christ was foreknown in the infinite and eternal mind and plan of God is that He would come to redeem sinners. And that's the point. The point is this, that, that today, today when you are faced with temptation to sin, when you are tempted to, to, not, ha- to not hope, to lose hope in, in difficult circumstances, if you will recall that this one, this one, Jesus Christ, was with God in the beginning. If when you are tempted by sin and your, your hope is dwindling, if you will recall that Christ was God and is God and was with God and that He paid the ransom to free you from sin and from judgment, that that God will help you. Those truths will be to you like an atomic bomb that blows up temptation and sin on the spot. If you will call to mind this afternoon when you are tempted to sin, God will help you. These just, this truth that Christ, who was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, to be sent as a Savior to rescue you, will be exactly the ammunition that you need to shoot down the lies of Satan and your flesh. That's why this matters. That's why it matters that Christ was chosen from before time because this was not a second option. This was not an afterthought. This was always the plan. And so these truths will act as divine ammunition 
to blow up the lies of the devil and of your flesh. Christ was known from eternity past as a ransom, a rescuer of sinners, and came 2,000 years ago to accomplish a mighty work, a mighty work that would bring hope to first century Jews and Gentiles and to you today in your fight against sin. And that's what Peter wants them to remember. Is that this Christ, who is not with you anymore, brothers and sisters, He was foreknown to come and do exactly what He accomplished while He was here. And His mission was successful. And if you will call these things to mind, you will be helped in your need for hope, in fiery trials, and in the fiery trial of temptation and sin. And to drive your hope deep down and to lift it up to heaven to help you persevere. Second, second truth to elevate our hope and to help our hatred of sin. The second truth is this, that Christ was revealed or he was manifested in the last times first truth is that christ was chosen from before the from before time second is that christ was manifested in these last times look at what verse 20 says christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you paul said in first timothy chapter 4 to timothy that that in, la- in the last times, in the last days, some will depart. Some will apostatize. They will leave the faith. They who once claimed to love God and to love His commands, to cherish the, the ransom price, the blood that was poured out for Him, they will depart and they will prove that they never loved the Lord. And oh, what a heartbreak it is when that happens. Our hearts grieve to see it. Paul said, in these last times, that deceitful spirits and teachings of demons will come and they will lead people astray. But in these last times, Christ came to give hope to those who were perishing in their sin and to transform hearts and minds once and for all so that they will endure and persevere. And so Christ was manifested in the last times, the end of times, the the fullness of time, the, the scripture tells us, it came. He had not yet appeared. Jesus had not appeared at one time. And then, the chosen one, he took on flesh, and he appeared. And that's what the Bible calls these last times. The times from Jesus' life and, and his ascension until his second coming. And Jesus said, if you have seen me in John 14, 9, you have seen the Father. Jesus was manifest. He was displayed to the world. And did they see him? They did see him. But they did not receive him, as John 1 says. And then, like a nightmare, but all according to plan, the chosen one dies. Why? The one who was manifested in the last times died because that was the plan. 
And it was the only way to rescue Peter's hearers and you from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That was the only way. Christ was manifested as part of the plan in the last times, in these last days, to rescue you from empty, hopeless, futile living. Talk about Christmas in October for our missionaries. Talk about Christmas in October. Listen to this. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. And mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. We sing it all the time at Christmas. It's part of the plan. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Like Robin read earlier. Born to raise them from their futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Born to rescue them from condemnation and death. Born to give second birth. Jesus was born so that you could be born again and live with Him forever. And so in these last times, the Christ, the eternally known Messiah, from His first coming to His second coming, came to give hope came to give help, came to rescue sinners. He has been revealed, unveiled to save you from this afternoon's sins and to bring you home to glory. He was born to raise you, a son and daughter, from the earth one day into the heavens to meet Him in the rapture to deliver you from sin and from the chaos of evil. To reign with Him forever in His kingdom. And to live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ was manifested in these last times to cause that, to, to elevate your hope like that and to help you with those truths in your hatred of sin. How would your week look? How would your week look if you were daily meditating on this truth? That Christ appeared. That Christ appeared. He was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. How would your week look if you were thinking on that, Lord Jesus, you appeared 2,000 years ago, and I'm living in these last times, and you came for me. To free me, to deliver me from futile ways. How would your week look? May that truth elevate your hope and help you to hate sin and to help you in moments like that coming this week. Truth number three from this text to elevate our hope and to help us to hate sin is this, that Christ was manifested for you. Not only was Christ manifested in the last times, but look at what Peter says. It was for you. And if for Peter's audience, who who didn't walk with Jesus, but are suffering as they follow Jesus, are being persecuted, there's fiery hot trials pressing down on them. If for them, certainly for us as well. Christ was manifested. Look at what he says in verse 20. Just a, a simple phrase. Was manifested in these last times for the sake of you. In Greek, it's just two words, dihumas, 
for you or for the sake of you. And this is a purpose statement. Why was Jesus manifested? It was for the purpose of you. All of the eternal plans of redemption fulfilled and accomplished in Christ for you. For you, believer. You. Me. For us. Peter declares that Christ appeared for the sake of His people. To free you from your futile ways of living. Your futile ways of living. My futile ways. Yours. They make it specific. You. And so Peter is saying, don't go on living in futile ways. Don't go on drinking the evenings away because of your frustrations. Don't go on living in disunity with your spouse because you won't obey Christ. Repent and obey. Don't go on clicking on those websites that you were freed from. That seek to enslave you again. Don't go on like that. Christ was made manifest for you. Amazing. For you and for me. Proof of God's love. Not of our deserving or of our worth. We were the ones in futile ways, weren't we? We were the ones needing to be ransomed out of captivity. A captivity that certainly we were, were born into in a, in a fallen world, but that we ourselves were card-carrying members of. Enemies of God. Dead in our sins. For the sake of you. He loved you. He had a plan to save you. And who are you? Who am I? We're nothing. We're puny. It's mind-boggling. Christ was made manifest in these last days. For who? For you. For you who believe. And Peter says to his hearers, it's all for you. Not because of you. Not because you had anything to offer. Not because you brought anything to the table. And God said, well, that's that's just too good of a bargain. Too good of a a deal. How could I pass it up? Of course I'll save you. No. But because of His love. Because of His perfect, eternal love for sinners like you and I. And if anything should cause us to take our way of life, our conduct is the word in the text, our way of living seriously, is that if you are believing today and trusting in Christ today, it's because the plan of eternity, the plan of redemption in the eternal mind of God was that He would have for Himself a people who are so satisfied in Him And repulsed by their sin. That they would be glad to be rescued moment by moment. Day by day. Week after week. Decade after decade. By this God. If anything should cause us to take our way of life. Our sin. Our holiness. Seriously. It's that God had a plan to save us. So that we wouldn't have to walk in our ways anymore. We wouldn't have to walk in futility and, and emptiness and brokenness because of our sin. 
And so this is why Peter can say, brothers and sisters, be holy. Be holy. Pursue holiness. Kill your sin. Conduct yourselves in fear. You have been ransomed from the futile ways of living. And how you live matters. It matters. I was talking with a couple this weekend thinking about brides and grooms. We've got some weddings coming up. If you're a to-be bride or a to-be groom, your eyes are to be so laser-focused on your bride that out of a million other women, you would say, I choose her. Not because you know you have to, Right? Because of your vows that you made, although that's true, but because you day by day, moment by moment, are saying, You are the one. You are precious to me. You are beautiful. You are a delight to me at the exclusion of all others. I am focused on you, laser focused. Men, treat your wives that way. Wives, treat your husbands that way because enticements will come to lure you away, to compromise your covenant, your devotion to them. And just like a bride and a groomer, to be laser-focused on one another in purity, in love, spiritually, physically, all of that is one flesh. So Christ longs for the devotion and affection of His bride. Just as the groom's eyes are laser focused on his bride in singular devotion, so must our eyes be fixed on Christ. And if, men, you will look to your wives like that, they will be precious to you. And the the silly enticements of lust will be seen for what they are. And I've seen that in my life. I've seen God, and I've known dozens of you men have seen God give you victory over lust and impurity in your life. Not perfectly, but because you said, Christ, I will follow you. And that's what Peter's calling for here. Singular devotion. And don't you want that? You can have that. If you will say to the Lord, Lord, give me that kind of devotion. Because you were manifested for me. And so won't you be his Won't you look to Him? Won't you say, Lord, make me yours? You were manifested for me. I want to be yours. Help me. Help me. Talk about truth to elevate our hope and to help our hatred of sin. Number four, Christ was raised to give you hope and give you help. Christ was raised to give you this hope and this help. Look at verse 21. He says, In the last times He was revealed for the sake of you. For the sake of you. And then verse 21, Who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. My my goal this morning is just to wow you with Christ. Christ was raised, brothers and sisters. He was raised up to give you hope and help. And and the resurrection does two things. We know that it it vindicates, right? It validates that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. 
Jesus said, it is what? It is finished. And the Father says, it is finished. Absolutely it's finished. The plan is finished. It's complete. And so God raised him from the dead and he says, yes, this, is, this was the plan. And we did it. And of course they did it, right? Who could stop God? Who's going to stop God from glorifying himself by, by rescuing captives and making them his own? Of course he did it. It vindicates the shedding of Jesus' blood in the place of sinners to ransom us from our sins. The resurrection is beautiful. It's finished. Christ suffered. The, the Father says, My Son suffered once for all for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to Me. Christ was raised to give you hope, to bring you to God. But second... Yes, it's done. Second, it, it says that death is defeated. Sin's power over you as a cruel master is eradicated. It is not your master anymore. And if you go on living in sins, you will die, Romans 8 says. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will what? Live. Believer, you live because Christ has died and He has set you free. So you don't have to live under sin's power anymore. The temptations to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die are crushed. Amen. Amen. Can you remember what that was like to live like that? Thank you, Lord, that death is defeated and crushed exposed, sin is exposed for the lie that it is, and you're free. Christ was raised to give you hope, to give you help, and so when temptation comes, how does the resurrection help you right now? When it comes today and it promises satisfaction that your flesh yearns for, what can you say that you once were not able to say? You can say, no way! I know what you're promising, sin, and you're a liar. I don't have to give in to you anymore. Christ was dead and he was raised up. And I don't play your games anymore. And so brothers, don't play games with sin. Let's knock it off. Let's quit dabbling with the sins that would destroy us. Sisters, do not harbor in your heart Bitternesses and anger or resentments or envies toward your friends or your spouses. Kill it. You're not a slave to that anymore. Men, you don't have to compete with the accomplishments and the achievements of the world. You don't have to live up to some kind of worldly standard. No, that's been killed in you. And so when that temptation comes, you say, no. One day I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise up just like Jesus did. I'm going to be with Him. And I'm going to live with Him forever. And that's the meaning of Christ's resurrection for daily living. You're going to live with Him one day. You believe that? That's our hope, brothers and sisters. That's our help. Fifth, Christ has made you a believer in God. Christ raised you. He was raised up. Peter says God raised Him from the dead to give you hope and help. If He did not rise up, We are still in our sins and we are the most to be pitied. But he didn't. 
He rose up. And then fifth, Christ made you a believer in God. Fifth, hear this truth. Christ made you a believer in God. He did the necessary work to bring us to God the Father. Look at verse 21. Who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, He was eternally foreknown. He was manifested in human form. He poured out His blood. Died. God raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. And through all of this, we come to hope in God. Through all of that, we come to hope in God. Because of that, Piper says, John Piper says, we are believers in God. Through all of that, God gave Him glory. And through all of this, we come to hope in God. And so the elect, the chosen believers in 1 Peter and us are the humbled, joyful, undeserving believers who will enjoy Him forever and eternity as those bought with precious blood and through no work or wisdom of our own. And all of this, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And then finally, six, Christ was raised and given glory. Christ was raised and given glory. How does this give us hope and help for the fight against sin? Jesus was raised. God brought Him back to heaven And He gave Him glory. He seated Him at the right hand of Himself with the glory that He had from the beginning. John 1 says that Christ was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That is glory. And Christ has been brought back into the heavens with His Father, and and here's how that helps us and gives us hope, is that that's our path also. That is our path also. Listen to these words, if you don't believe me, from Romans 8, 29-30. Those whom He foreknew, listen to this, believers, listen to this church, those whom He foreknew, predestined, He chose, loved, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom He predestined. He also called and those whom He called, He also justified and those whom He justified, here's our word from Peter, He also glorified. Christ was raised from the dead and the Father gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We follow the same path of Jesus. Not that we become God like Jesus, but we will receive what we do not deserve, which is glory. And so I ask you in closing, do you believe this? Is this news precious to you? Is it precious to you that you, a guilty offender against a holy and good God, who with a a slap to the face claimed to be wise and exchanged the glory of God for the lies of the devil, who hates your soul and the maker of your soul, 
That was you. And do you believe that that you who once took God to be a fool, thinking that he was impotent to do anything to stop your rebellion, would just let your sin go undealt with? Do you believe that God in His love sent Christ as a king to save a sinner like that? Or do you refuse His kind and His kingly rule? Do you reject His sacrifice? Do you turn away today from the news that Christ would save a sinner like you? Do you believe it? If you don't hear this, the fine against this God is so astronomical that you will never pay it off in a million billion years in judgment in hell if you do not bow the knee to King Jesus. But a heroic act of submission and sacrifice has been made to save you if you will confess that Christ is Lord. And so do that today. Confess that Christ is Lord. Come to Jesus. Jesus is coming soon. You don't want to meet Him when He comes having not bowed your knee to Him because He is coming to judge the living and the dead. So turn today. Today is a day of salvation. Would you believe? Trust in Christ today. Christian, brother and sister, put your hope in God today. And may you be helped in your fight against sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. Thank you for your precious word. Would you take these truths and drive them deep down into our souls and lift our hope to heaven so that we persevere and we press on in our fight against sin? Would you make us holy so that the world will see your work in us and glorify you, our God and Father in heaven? In Jesus' name, amen.